Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is civil disobedience, take two. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hooks and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm Pastor Amanda Zenzelo, and I serve as the pastor of Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Dawn Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, you said you have a caveat at the beginning of this. I do. Let's hear it. All right, well... I want to say that this is the first time that I am talking much about this experience. Yes, we came very close to recording a podcast just before. Right. I'm quite glad that we decided to wait. Yeah, I am too. You know, whatever comes out of this, this is a little more unscripted of a podcast than we normally do. Yes, it is. And so we'll give that kind of caveat out there. And... For me, I want to say that this is the first time I'm talking much about this, a whole entire experience. And as such, I'm going to be talking about my experience. Oftentimes I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I work really hard to center the story of others. And especially in this work, to center the story and the reason why we were doing this action in this work. And so... We'll have some of that and give the reason for it and those kinds of pieces. And as we go through our conversation, I think what part of this will be is an unpacking or an explaining of what my own experience was like. Sure. I'm not going to do that in a sermon because I'm really cognizant when I'm preaching that everything needs to be pointing to God. Mm -hmm. And my experience can point to God. And at the same time on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to be thinking about me and my experience. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had the time to craft something that really lets me make certain that the focus is not on me. So if this particular podcast sounds a lot like it's about Amanda and her experience, here's my caveat. This could sound a lot like a podcast about Amanda and her experience, One of the things as Lutherans we're not so great at is testimony Mm -hmm. and the power and understanding and giving validity and power to testimony, which means the personal story of an individual. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I'm going to be talking myself out of not sharing this part of my story. You think? By doing it in this podcast. Okay. I think this is a way and a method for me to be able to share my testimony of this experience without feeling like I have to triple or double check things in the sense of I'm not preaching on a Sunday morning. I'm not writing a newsletter article on this. This is an opportunity for me to just tell the story. Which I'm very much looking forward to because I think as an introvert, and we'll get into my part of this as well, Mm -hmm. but as an introvert, as somebody who is part of a religion that doesn't necessarily go out and evangelize Mm -hmm. that way. Yep. It's still important to hear the stories of the people who will do an action. Yeah. Do something other than just sit with the thoughts and prayers. And I think that there are plenty of people who have asked me about the experience and who want to know about the experience. Oh, yes. And I don't want to downplay the importance of sharing my experience. And so that's what this will somewhat be about is Mm -hmm. my experience and what it was like. So for folks who are kind of determining whether or not they want to step forward in acts of civil disobedience or those kinds of things, we can talk about that stuff. As I have been talking about this and sharing pieces, I have tried very much in my social media to be very intentional about centering the stories of those we are advocating for. Mm -hmm. Really critical to me. And so 
If I fail to do that as well as I wish through this podcast, then I would simply ask to offer myself grace in that. Because it's still early enough in my own processing of this experience that I may not get it right. And so there's the opportunity for me to say, I may not get this telling right. I don't think there's going to be a wrong way for this to go. But let's step back a little bit further and say that this is version 2.0 for all intents and purposes, because we've already done civil disobedience as a podcast a long time ago. (laughs) So back on January 30th, 2017... We did a podcast specifically about the actions of Jesus in our scripture around yep. civil disobedience. And so we want to bring that up. That yes. <laughs> there were riots happening that. at the time, and it came up with the whole Jesus overturning the moneylenders' yeah. tables and whatnot. So we decided to talk civil disobedience. So if you're interested, please go back and listen to that one. We'll link to it on our page on the podcast. And that gives a scriptural basis for mm-hmm. why these kinds of actions are in keeping with our theology as ELCA Lutherans. Mm -hmm. And so for folks who are kind of maybe newer to our podcast, who haven't been around for the holy moly, like (laughs) two years we've been doing this. It's been a while we've been doing this. You can go back and get some of the theological underpinnings that we may not get into in this particular episode. But a word to the wise, you're going to have to go back to the Central Portland page Because iTunes will only give you 100 of our episodes. Right. And we have one more to reference here. Mm -hmm. You can find that at centralportland.org. And right there on the homepage, you'll see weekly podcast as a link. Just click on it. And then you can go through and hit older posts for... Keep scrolling through the olders. ...a while. You'll be able to find it. And actually, Don will be doing the hard work of finding those so that when you click on the weekly podcast button and you find this episode listed, there will be links to those two episodes for you to be able to find Absolutely. shortcuts. The second episode we're talking about is how to be an ally. And we recorded that one way back in Pride Month of May 2016. And that is, again, talking about amplifying others' stories and not necessarily your own experience. Exactly. This whole piece that I was talking about, about making certain you pass the microphone at the right time and to amplify the story of others and to not center yourself as you're doing work and to not claim the title of ally, that that is something that is gifted to you by people. You can go back and listen to that episode Again, to get a bit of a theological grounding and an understanding that we may not touch again here in this episode. Okay. Now, we are many minutes into this podcast, and there are probably (laughs) still some people listening who have no idea what we're about to talk about. True. Very true. So let's give a little more current background in terms of we're talking about a choice that you've made for civil disobedience on a current action that has been going on in Portland, Mm -hmm. specifically regarding immigrants. Can you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. So in August of 2018, which is just past for us right now, Mm -hmm. we did an August of Action through an organization called the Interfaith Movement for Immigrant Justice, shortened to Emerge. Mm -hmm. And there was a big focus throughout that month to do 10 actions echoing the 10 plagues of the Old Testament. Sure. Makes sense. And calling on elected officials or government officials who have the capacity to let our people go. Mm -hmm. And throughout the month, there were lots of different actions. Three of them included acts of civil disobedience by faith leaders. 
And the final action happened on August 30th of this last month. And I was one of those who stood forward willing to risk arrest that day. And I was, at the end of the action, one of those who was arrested and cited with two federal citations. And you have a court date coming up. Which we do not know yet. Mm. The first group of three Mm -hmm. and then another group of six faith leaders who had been arrested in previous actions. They had received their court dates Mm -hmm. because I think there were a few enough of them. But when we were arrested, there were more than 20 of us. Mm -hmm. And so they were just processing us and giving us our citations as quickly as they could. And the court dates were written on our citations as to be determined. Mm -hmm. And we will get something in the mail to tell us when our court date is. The officer at the time said, it could be six weeks before you hear anything. Just be watching for it. (laughs) Wheels of justice moving slowly, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) A friend who does another podcast asked me to write something about why I did what I did and what it was about. And so I wrote this, mm, I think, within about two hours after being released. Sure. And I'm just going to read it because I had the words in the language at the time. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear a little paper shuffle here because I actually printed this out. And so what the action was about is that we are calling for an end to immigrant detention and family separation. These actions have been to shed light on the plight of the asylum-seeking men incarcerated in the Federal Correction Institute in Sheridan, Oregon. Also to highlight the contract that ICE holds with the Northwest Correctional Facility in the Dalles, where they balance their budget on the backs of migrants waiting for their immigration hearings. I participated because I am compelled by the stories of people treated unjustly and unethically. I participated because my faith tells me that I am responsible for my neighbor and my neighbor has been harmed by these practices and because it's helping. Our actions in the month framed conversations, they gave direct hope to prisoners, and they pressured authorities to make real changes. Our arrests are not about us as individuals. It's about the stories of those we serve and those we amplify. And the stories are, in particular, for the men who are in Sheridan, 123 men were picked up at the border and brought to Oregon to Mm -hmm. a federal correctional facility, given very, very little notice that they were receiving these men. And they were all asylum seekers. And so the process for seeking asylum in our country is the same as international law, actually, how this happens. And you go and you present yourself at the border. You've done no paperwork. You've done nothing because you're fleeing for your life. That's Mm -hmm. what it means to be asylum seeking. And when you arrive at the border, you present yourself to the authorities at the border and proclaim that you are seeking asylum. And then they take care of you from there. If you can't get to a border crossing, an official one, then you might cross the border in an area that is not legal to cross, but then as soon as you can, turn yourself into authorities and say that you're seeking asylum. So these 123 men, that was their case. They had come seeking asylum. It was during the height of the zero-tolerance policy and family separation that was happening here this summer in the United States of America, and they were taken then in chains and shackles for one day, 23 hours of the day spent in chains and shackles, hand and foot, 
Now, they have not actually committed a crime. They have they just not committed presented a crime. themselves as wanting to seek asylum. And their action of coming is not illegal. Mm-hmm. It is a legal action that we have by international law. And they were transported to Oregon with no information on where they were going. At least one of these gentlemen separated from his children and wife and no information on them and held for four months before they had any information on their families, their status, or what was happening. Those 123, some of them were deported Mm -hmm. and returned back to their country. Some of them signed away their right to asylum and were deported. And some of them were able to be released. And what has been incredibly powerful is that through this August of action, as we have been going to the director of the regional ICE facility, saying, let my people go and making phone calls and showing up and asking for a meeting and having conversation with them, that the legal community has also been working alongside. So the ACLU filed in order to get access to these individuals Mm -hmm. to make certain that their rights were being upheld and maintained, which Oh, and they were there identifying themselves. At the action, the ACLU. Yep. Yep. But even beyond that, the men who were in Sheridan didn't have legal representation. And so the ACLU sued the government to get them legal representation. Which is how it's supposed to be. And so a group, Innovation Law Lab, then came in pro bono and started to work with these men after three months of incarceration. That is crazy. And so after that, then their stories started to come out because the petition, the habeas corpus is public record. Mm -hmm. And stories of inadequate food, inappropriate food, inability to practice religious faith because they were being housed inappropriately. Or from what they were saying, because I was there Mm -hmm. and there were stories that were being Mm -hmm. read out, it's not that they weren't even letting them practice their faith, but they were trying to get them to work against their faith by feeding them something that would be not allowed from their religion. And whatever the reason was, either they didn't know or they didn't understand or they didn't have appropriate time to prepare... To feed someone who sees a cow as sacred beef for dinner is inappropriate. Completely. That was happening. Mm -hmm. And so these were the stories that were coming out and that we were centering and lifting up in our actions throughout the time. And as we were doing these actions, the lawyers were taking the photos back to the men as they were meeting with them and giving them hope and telling them there are people fighting for them. And since this has started, more than half of the men have been released. They passed their credible threat interview, which means that there is a reason to believe that they should not return to their home country of origin, Mm -hmm. that they are under a credible threat of violence, and that they are not a flight risk. They were eligible for release, and through the hard work of the attorneys and the lawyers, through the advocacy of the community, Almost all of the men have been released since the beginning of this work. So it worked. Yes, there was actually one gentleman there that day. So on August 30th at this final action that we were both at, this gentleman came back. He came back and he spoke. And my husband was asking me what he was saying. And I said, I honestly don't know because the speaker was pointed away from me. Mm -hmm. And I have notoriously poor hearing to begin with. I'm like, but it, it really does not matter. What matters is you could just hear from his tone Mm. how grateful 
I mean, having gone through all that and then mm-hmm. to see actually this country does kind of want you here and wants the best for you, I didn't need to actually hear words. Even though you, when he turned his head, I could hear the thank you. And you could yeah. see visibly moved. It was a stunning moment. It really was. So the action that we took on the 30th of August was the kind of culmination of a month of these actions. And one thing that I think maybe I had kind of understood mm-hmm. was how much there are tactics and it's a chess game in doing this kind of work. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I saw it over the course of the whole month, right? Because sure. I attended the first action where there were arrests so that I could see what it was like. And I led the worship service, the worship portion of it during the second action where people risked arrest and were arrested. And then I was one of the people standing forward in civil disobedience, the last one. So I had been present and I got to see a little bit of like the planning side of it. You know, in the movie Selma, where there's a scene where you see Dr. King talking about the details and how they're going to take this action on the bridge Mm -hmm. and what the purpose of it is and why and all of that. And I had never thought about how thoughtful you have to be to create these moments, these moments of change. And as I was there that day on August 30th, you know, I had specifically asked a member of the congregation to be an accompanier and to give me a ride to the place and to be present to make sure I got a ride home and those kinds of pieces. And my cell phone was in their car and different pieces Mm -hmm. like that so that I had some structure around. It was very intentional about how we went forward with the day. And I thought about all of this, I think that night as I was trying to fall asleep, Rosa Parks was not alone when she sat in that bus. That was not just a random action that she did. It was planned and strategized and known And that hard work behind this strategy is what changes the world. It's not just the courage of the one person stepping forward, right? It's all the support structure. It's all the organizing. It's the power of that day on August 30th, not just the 20 clergy, not just two lines of 10 holding the line on each side of the street, but it's the power of the gathered community around an altar in the center of the street and sharing the story and the voices of the people that we were there to fight for. Mm -hmm. I think part of me had imagined that it was just one hero stepping forward and changing the world and one person can make the difference and all this kind of thing. And participating in this just brought home to me, it's not about any one of us. Any one of us individually may not tip the scales to justice, but when we organize and when we work together. And when we allow the wisdom of one person's strategy and the wisdom of another person's strategy and the courage of another person's standing, when we put it together, that's when the scales begin to tip. And I wonder about all the support personnel that were with the leaders of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. The behind the scenes is or Yeah. All the people who were there, whose names we don't list and just how powerful their participation was. So one of the things that I admired so much about how this all happened is there were multiple different tactical teams that were in place for this. So there was the group of individuals willing to risk arrest, 
and there was the safety team, mm-hmm. and then there was a tactical team, and then there were worship leaders, mm-hmm. and each person had their role and was very needed. So the worship leaders were just leading worship, and there was a media spokesperson, mm-hmm. right? It was designated, and each person's role was really important to hold on to because we needed worship leaders to hold the space, and we needed tacticians who were like, hmm... They're looking like they're going to wait us out. Mm-hmm. They're just going to let us sit here and do nothing because they really don't want to arrest us. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to wait us out. We need to step things up. So we're going to shift. We're going to move now. And then those of us participating just followed the directions mm-hmm. and kept our own centeredness and our own groundedness and our own energy calm and just followed the directions of the tacticians. And then our safety team on the outskirts, redirecting traffic, interfacing with people who were trying to get to work. And we had closed down a street, a public throughway, And so they were redirecting traffic and interfacing with the community to explain what was going on and managing tempers. And If you were paying attention, and I did not have any idea what to expect mm-hmm. when I joined this day. Right. So I was keeping an eye on what was going around incredibly smoothly done. Mm-hmm. And you could definitely tell that people had their roles and they played them very well. It made a difference, it right? Did. Because it kept the focus on the objective of the day, which was that incarcerating people asking for help is not the ideal of our country. Mm-hmm. And our faith tells us that we are responsible for stepping forward and saying, no, this is not what we do. Well, it provided a really fascinating counterpart to Antifa, which we touched on when we talked about civil disobedience because there happened to be riots going on at the time. And it's such an interesting counterpart in terms of the intentionality of it and the fact that the goal was not necessarily to bust things up, but the goal was to make a voice heard, Mm -hmm. hopefully propel some forward momentum on an issue but not just violence for the sake of violence to get a light shown on this particular issue. And I will say it's really hard to have the conversation around that because a lot of... Well, I can't uh, fault either one. I can tell you which one I'm more likely to do. Right. It's really interesting. Once we had been arrested and led to the back, we were put in a line along in the garage. Mm -hmm. There's like a garage in the back. And we were in this big, long line of more than 20 people. And the officers were all there and we had to keep your hands forward and Mm -hmm. a lot of nervous energy among the officers. And as the time continued and as they interacted with us and as we sang and as we spent time, they had conversations with us and they did a lot of comparing between our actions and other actions that have happened here in Portland. And it's troubling to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to process that yet. Because as I have said before, I hear that in some ways, sometimes destroying a temple is necessary. Yeah. Although I am personally not called to that action. Personally, the kind of action I could take was this prayerful, worshipful, intentional action. I do not condemn. Mm -mm. And that could get me in trouble. Saying that publicly could get me in trouble from some people. But I cannot condemn 
breaking down systems that are broken. Mm -hmm. And although techniques might be different than mine, that doesn't mean they are any less tactical or that they are any less intentional. No, because there is that kernel of truth to the old saying, nice guys finish last. Because sometimes you do need some more bold action, I think. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard and it's violent and we're in a hard time. Mm -hmm. And what I heard a lot on that day was a lot of comparisons and a lot of, well, you aren't like those people were, or we appreciate how you did this as compared to, you know, this was an awful experience. And some of that was the individual personal experience of Uh officers. And some of it is just human nature to compare experiences Mm -hmm. that come close by each other. They're totally different. Mm -hmm. The actions are completely different and comparing them. I don't know if that necessarily helps us. I can say that I personally can participate in this style of action with integrity, with my faith, because I see the nonviolent actions of Christ and I can go to that. Mm -hmm. But being committed to nonviolence is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's hard. And it came up a lot. It came up a ton that day. Oh, I bet. Because nobody wants it to get to the point where property is damaged and people are hurt. Well, where it was really visible. So once we got back to the back and we were standing in the line and we were singing, and I have to say that was one of the more powerful moments because I was one of the last ones brought to the back. Mm -hmm. So majority of my colleagues were all the way down to my right kind of stretching in and started singing, I think, as I came in. And so I just joined the song and the acoustics in the garage were awesome. Nice. Just going to say the acoustics were fantastic sure. in there. So it was really fun to sing in there. And we could hear the community singing outside to our left. Oh, interesting. And I had to wonder as we were singing, whether the community could hear us. I would be surprised if they couldn't. And that was kind of cool to mm-hmm. have that going and to hold that song into that space and 20 voices of clergy lots of us can sing so there was harmony and there was fun and it was beautiful it was great to sing there there was one officer who had chosen to remain completely covered so their face was completely covered in like a ski mask and sunglasses okay and they were completely covered over time there were so many of us they had to bring out like a fresh box of the zip tie cuffs sure and open it up because they didn't have enough zip ties for mm-hmm. us all. And so as they were breaking open the box and getting it all set up and doing that kind of stuff, one of the other faith leaders was able to talk to this officer and say, can you explain to me your head covering? Mm-hmm. And the officer said, I've chosen to do this since the previous protests because I was followed home and my family was threatened and oh, my children no. were threatened. And the faith leader asked, how old are your children? Well, four and two. Oh, geez. And so this officer eventually took the glasses off and we made eye contact several times. And I think maybe it's eye contact, like song and eye contact that for me is the through line of my own experience of this. Mm -hmm. Because there was this eye contact with this officer who was so afraid he would not show his face. And when we would make eye contact and I am who I am and my habit in public, especially when wearing a clergy collar, is to smile at someone, especially in Portland, Mm -hmm. so that you don't think that the clergy is a jerk face. I don't know that I would have chosen to smile at an arresting officer in that situation had it not been habit. Sure. 
but I could see the smile in response in his eyes and yet could not and would not show their face. And that fear, that division, that pain in our culture, I think that is one of the pieces that is heartbreaking in Mm -hmm. this experience. And listening to another one of the arresting officers just struggling with and trying to have conversation about and asking us questions and finding his way through. It, it was just an interesting interactions with him as well. I understand making a living and I understand benefits, healthcare, mm-hmm. retirement, and, mm-hmm. and it's hard. And I'm talking specifically being an ICE officer So we were arrested by Federal Protective Services, not by ICE immigration officers, although they were there. Mm -hmm. And they were a part of the group that was watching over us. But it's actually Federal Protective Services that are the officers that are responsible. Well, the cars kept saying Homeland Security on them, right? Right, right. And so those are the ones that are responsible for policing federal properties, right? Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is different than the officers responsible for maintaining the safety of the federal courthouse, the federal Mm -hmm. facilities, those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. this is a federal property. And so Department of Homeland Security, the federal protection officers were the ones that were actually arresting us. Mm -hmm. And I can see, I don't know how to go down that hole or how to back out of that hole, (laughs) other than to say that the interactions with the officers were both kind, Mm -hmm. they were respectful. Oh, absolutely. They were very respectful towards us. There were a few moments that were not great, and they were not traumatizing to us or myself. I can't speak to others' experiences, but they did not traumatize me. Mm -hmm. They were awkward and heartbreaking and interesting and fascinating and curious. Those experiences with them, for a little while, I wondered about going back over to ICE and leaving my card. And saying I was one of the pastors that was arrested here. And several of the officers were very respectful and and talked about hope to meet you again in some other environment. Mm -hmm. Would love to have a conversation with you about this. And I didn't have the thought in my head to say, you're welcome to show up any Sunday at 10, 15 a.m. <laughs> and I'm happy to have coffee with you afterwards. Like, exactly. I, I should have said that. I did not think to say that in the adrenaline-hyped state that I was. And so, like, to leave my card and say I would be happy and honored to have a conversation with any of the officers who would want to have that conversation, part of me was, okay, I could do that. And part of me is like, no, I don't know if I can do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm called to that ministry. And so that's, again, as I'm processing my own experience of this, where are my limits and what is my capacity within this work that is to be done and what is my responsibility within this work that is to be done. But that's one of the aspects of it. So as I said, I got into this mainly because the day before you said to me, I think I might get arrested tomorrow. (laughs) And we were recording the podcast. Exactly. And I went, okay, I'll come and support you because Uh I think it's important. Yeah. So I saw everything up until the arrest. And then they took you away. And then I'm standing there next to the person that you had tasked to make sure that you got home and got got your cell phone back. And she's like, this is it. I have no idea how much longer this is going to be. Yeah. So that's when I left. Yep. And then I played the waiting game. What's going to (laughs) show up on social media? Who's going to hear what? How am I going to know how it all went? 
Yeah. And I'm sure there are many, many stories that happened after the point that I knew what the heck was going on. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to share? So I shared this particular part out pretty quickly on my own social media, but I don't know that I did it publicly. So I'll share. Because there were so many of us who were arrested, they did not process us there on site. They took us down to the federal building downtown and processed us, which is why they put us in zip ties, because Mm -hmm. policy is to have people in restraints when being transported. So they, they took the first group in the van right away. And so about half of us went there. And then there was kind of conversation, didn't know how long it was going to take before they came back. So instead of having us just standing in the garage with our hands behind our back, zip tied, they went ahead and divided us, men and women, and took us in and put us into the holding cells there at ICE. Mm -hmm. And so inside ICE, there are three holding cells. There's one for men, one for women, and one for adolescents. Oh, man. And... They took the women in first, so they brought us in, they closed the door, and then they removed our restraints, and then they took us one by one down the hallway and in to the women's holding cell because there was no one in the women's holding cell. And as the first one of us was being taken in, we heard through the loudspeaker next to the door the words, fear. He says he's, he's afraid. Well, I don't know. Just write it down. He, he feels fear. Just write it down. And the other faith leaders and I that were in the room kind of looked at each other, you know, and just had that moment. We're going to get to see a little behind the scenes here. Mm-hmm. This is something to witness. And so, you know, I stepped over so I could see down the hallway when the door opened and the next person was taken in and I, w- I went in last. And so two more times the door opened and I looked down the hallway and there was um, a Latino man standing at the end of the hallway in the holding cell marked men. And he made eye contact with me. And this is the other eye contact, right? He made eye contact with me. He recognized my collar and he just had like these sad eyes and this smile. Oh, geez. No ability to communicate. So the cells are not barred. It's like cement brick up to about waist level and then plate glass. Mm. And then inside the cell is just poured cement and then metal benches around the perimeter and then a short wall again about waist height and then there's an open toilet and on the toilet is a button you can push for a water fountain for water Mm -hmm. and the officers when they put us in assured us there are no cameras facing the toilet but it's open I mean it's wide open Mm -hmm. then there's like a a little hallway and a desk and then there's a room with glass and that's where the officers were waiting. There are no windows and it's all artificial lighting. So there's no way to tell time in there. Oh, that's crazy. There's no clocks. There's no nothing. You can't see like shadows passing on the wall to know that time is passing. You have everything taken from you, right? No, Mm -hmm. no personal belongings. And so there's no way to tell how long you're in there or how many hours, or what time of day or night it is. It was really, really disorienting. Sure, There was just enough of a curve to the wall that if I sat on kind of the far end of the room 
And if the gentleman stood on the far end of his room at kind of the points of the curve, we could see each other through mm-hmm. the glass. And so we kept making eye contact through the glass in the what turned out to be, I think, about three hours that we were held in the cell. I could tell that by some texting because my point person was in communication with my husband and my mother and sure, you know, people who were at a distance and worried. So I could look at the timestamps on that message to know it was about three hours that I was in the cell. And so the gentleman and I just kept making eye contact and then he was pulled out and he was processed and we could hear the conversation through the glass that was being had with him. And we knew, know that he's in the process of deportation. So at the end of our time there, they came back in and they re-zip tied us and then they walked us back down the hallway and again, eye contact with that gentleman and no ability to communicate, but just again, seeing him and witnessing his existence and his story. And there was another gentleman in with him, Hmm. but there was just the one that I really made contact with. So they brought us out and in the garage now there were two vehicles there was the van that we had seen before and there was a big giant bus and we were put into the back of the van the women were put in the very very back and riding in the back of a van with your arms zip tied behind you that's not comfortable really it actually hurts yeah like I'm just gonna say it hurt it didn't do damage I'm not harmed but it hurt Mm mm-hmm And then the gentlemen were all loaded in in front of us. And then we heard the chains. And the two men were brought out in shackles, wrist and ankle, and loaded onto the bus next to us. And they were being taken to the Tacoma Detention Facility for further processing. And up to Tacoma from Portland, two and a half, three-hour ride. Mm Mm-hmm. Their hands were in front of them. They were not behind them, but they were loaded onto the bus to leave at the same time that we did. And I will never know his name, and I will never know the depth of his story, but we were there in that place, in that space together, and witnessed him and witnessed his journey, and he may well still be sitting in a cell in Tacoma right now. That is something to carry Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why we do this to say that this kind of treatment of people isn't the way we want to do this. Mm-hmm. So we made our way to the federal building downtown where we were offloaded and then received our citations and then we were released. So I was very hungry, had a horrible headache, very mm-hmm. dehydrated. Yeah, Fascinating story. Yeah. Well, that's going to lead me, given the length of this, into my last yeah. question. Yeah. Would you do it again? Yeah. Yeah. My husband had said to me when I left that morning, he said, if the spirit moves you, I'll bust you out of jail. (laughs) And I remember very clearly there was a moment where I was standing there and they had said, "Uh we're asking you very clearly to leave. Yeah. You will be risking arrest if you stay. Yeah. And I followed the lead of the person who was there to make sure that you got home. Yeah. But at the same time, in the back of my head, I was all, if she goes, I'm going. (laughs) And then we all three would have to have somebody. I'm sure we could find somebody. Yeah. But I don't know. I would. 
And yet that wasn't the time for it. Mm -mm. And again, back to that planning and tactical Mm -hmm. and we were very specific. The work that we had done ahead of time, they had our emergency contacts. Yep. You know, we had signed waivers. We had very, very, very strategic. And that I think is important to recognize is this was not just a willy nilly kind of a thing. I had spent the entire month of August discerning this decision. Mm -hmm. I had talked to my executive counsel. I talked to my counsel. I talked to my spouse. I talked to my best friend. I talked to my therapist. I talked to, Uh right? Like this had been an entire month of discerning this action. And so when I say, yeah, I would do it again, I would do it as carefully and Mm -hmm. as intentionally as this. I knew the people involved. I had built trust with them. Mm -hmm. I had seen how effectively they had managed things. I knew the care on the other side was present. All those pieces. There's still unknowns. I could go to prison for 30 days. I could get a $5,000 fine. Mm -hmm. Those things can still happen. And with the information that I had, I knew as much as possible what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. And I think for those pondering this or for those discerning this action, that is really important to know who you are involved with and to watch and see how tactical are they? How careful are they? What kind of supports are there? Are they being really intentional? Are results actually happening? Mm -hmm. Are you getting results from the actions that you are taking or are you putting things on the line in a way that is not going to get the kind of results that you're wanting? All of that is not being weak or wimpy or cowardly. It is being wise and savvy. And moments of history don't change because we just randomly do something. Change through civil disobedience happens when we are very careful and intentional, smart and cunning and stand on the side of God's justice. And so that I think is where I would want to leave this for people who are pondering, do I want to do this or not? Or, gee, that looks kind of cool that they were able to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, I get all of that. And if you do it, do it smart. Be tactical. Know your objectives and know who you're standing with. It was incredibly powerful. And given the right circumstances and the right reason and the right cause, I would do it again now. We'll see how I feel after court, (laughs) but for now, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about your experience with civil disobedience. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to make this podcast recording and to walk alongside all of you to hear your stories. If you have questions or you would like to give some feedback about this podcast episode, it would be great to hear from you. You can reach out to us at podcast at centralportland.org by email, or you can reach out to us on Facebook. You're always welcome to send me a note at pastor at centralportland.org as well. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.